0: Some things are not possible when you do it without a service mesh.
1: Take the network concerns out of the applications and free up the developers to focus on um, on developing the application. that
0: Bolt.com is pretty big and we have dedicated software development teams that take care of their own applications now. They need to be in the loop about stuff like this.
1: And then I realized that I was spending far too much time um, looking for cool middleware to put in my applications to handle network related concerns.
2: Hey everyone, welcome to the BOL.com Tech Lab podcast. We share our experience with you, speaking behind the screens of IT and tech in general at BOL.com, the largest e-commerce platform in the Netherlands and Belgium. We are sharing our approach to IT, e-commerce, and retail platforms. The hosts of the show, Peter Paul van der Beek and Peter Brouwers.
3: Welcome. In this podcast, you know, we like to share uh, our journey. And uh, the journey of today that we will share with you is uh, yeah, how we uh, started to experiment with uh, with Service Mesh and got it into production. Well, Google have been uh, with us all this, uh, this way, so if we... Uh, uh, someone from Google uh, and someone of vol.com uh, joining us. So, uh, yeah, it will be an exciting uh, episode
2: again, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. And how is the real-time sales dashboard doing these days, uh, Peter-Paul? I'm referring yes. to the latest episode.
3: Well, well, there, there, there is. so there is one in cartridge with all these live nice Lego boxes and I don't know how it's doing that it's it's really interesting to watch uh beta yeah. <laughs> okay
2: but not detracted now eh? it's uh, now focused no, no, I'm focused okay. here <laughs> okay yeah so um yeah our two guests hey, they, they they joined up for um, a presentation during kubecon and the cloud native con 2020 this uh, this year the the title of the presentation was weaving a mesh for multiple clusters at ball.com um so this triggered us yeah, this triggered our curiosity. So we have questions like, "What is service mesh about? Why do we need it? How did we implement it?" So time to introduce uh, our guests, uh, Peter Paul.
3: Yeah. So we have uh, James Brook. He's a cloud solutions architect at uh, Google. Uh, been along us uh, for the whole journey uh, in this uh, service mesh thing. And we have uh, Remco Overdijk, who has been with us on the podcast uh, earlier, I guess. Uh, yep. On the yeah a friend of the show and besides (laughs) that (laughs) a tech lead in the provisioning fleet and an expert system engineer at ball.com. Welcome to you both.
0: Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Hello.
3: Thank you. Hey, you teamed up for uh, a presentation during KubeCon and uh, CloudNativeCon. Yeah, which had to be done uh, virtually and we will share the video. How was this experience for you?
0: Uh, Well, being, presenting on kubecon was was definitely great right it's one of the, the the conferences you in in this field of work you dream about presenting on uh, on kubecon so when we finally got the chance that was a that was a real upper for us uh it was a bit of a downer having to do it remotely like a pre-recorded video that was definitely not the uh, the experience we were we were hoping for um but we got the content across and uh yeah reception was actually pretty good so yeah quite happy about that don't know about you James
1: Yeah, I was I was so excited when uh, when the talk got accepted. I was really looking forward, though, to getting up in front of that that live audience and uh, having the hallway conversations afterwards. Um, And it was going to be in Amsterdam. So, you know, it's a a global conference in our our industry that was going to come to to the Netherlands. But, yeah, I think it is still it was still really good to give the talk and. I've heard several people say afterwards that it was it was useful to their own journeys. So definitely, yeah, One day, one day we'll do it in front of a real audience <laughs> together. Yeah,
0: yeah, we will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. next year. Yeah. Cool.
1: So yeah,
3: uh, yeah we uh, we have um, uh, in the in the podcast always uh, the dilemma. So we we do, do, to warm up a little. So um, yeah, first one for you. Service is cool on top of the hype cycle, so we had to start and implement it.
0: <laughs> a, that's
1: probably a good one for Remco to start with. Uh, but yeah, for sure yeah, Service uh, Mesh is cool, but...
0: <laughs> we'll definitely touch on this. Um, so short answer is no, we definitely didn't start implementing this because it's cool and on top of the hype circle. It, it definitely is in in on top of that circle. Uh, but that is definitely not why we started implementing this, and I would recommend against that, just because it looks cool. It's not a uh, a, a great feature for your clusters.
1: Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, that's one thing we we touched on in the talk. Is it's, it definitely makes sense um, to think carefully about why you implement anything and to and to plan it and test carefully. Um, so, yeah, being cool. Uh, Sometimes it's a re- is one of the reasons, uh, but yeah, definitely not the the primary reason for doing this.
0: I mean, we you are just starting out with uh, Kubernetes and and that kind of stuff. Um, uh, it might be useful to just add a service mesh from the get go, but when you already have lots of stuff running in production, um, uh, you need to be a bit more careful, as we will uh, undoubtedly explain. You yeah, know, we we
2: also touch upon that one. Eh? We, we compare implementations, uh, Greenfield-based, or uh, uh, having already running uh, so much uh, services. So uh, later on, we will continue about that one. Yeah, we, ha- we have prepared another dilemma, a bit in line with the first one. Uh, we would have managed multi-cluster Kubernetes without Service Mesh.
0: Um, well, we tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's possible, but you have to... Um some things are not possible when you do it without a service mesh so um it's definitely easier to go to go multi-cluster on kubernetes when you when you have a service mesh you're just making quality of life a lot better for yourself
1: i guess that also varies um depending on whether or not you know whether you went to greenfield multi-cluster if you plan for for multi-cluster from the beginning perhaps it's easier um but i think it's yeah you when we when we talk more about service mesh and explain what it is and, and why bull.com adopted it i think i think that will become clear
2: yeah i, th- I think that's yeah. a good structure right, for the, for this talk uh, first uh, talk about uh, yeah how, how do you fi- define service mesh uh, wh- what is it uh, why why do you need it in, in general and then we can get uh, yeah why did we need it at bol.com? Uh what what we what did we try to solve uh, talk about the journey that we uh, google and bolt.com did together so uh, let's uh, take that as a structure.
1: So yeah, how, how do you define service mesh? So I I can have a go at that, um, and I think I think it's useful, you know, because not everybody, despite being on top of the hype cycle, knows knows what service mesh even is or what it's about. Um, so if you don't mind, I was thinking I might I might take you back through the last twenty years of the history of the software <laughs> industry, and um, and kind of frame. The, the problems that service mesh, service mesh tries to tries to solve um and it's going to be a really quick rewind so i i think i've i've been doing software development in some form for a little over 20 years now i, I had to think about that just before the podcast quite a long time for me um and i i sort of think back to how it was all um bare metal servers there was nothing else um there was this kind of big design upfront thing. There wasn't much about agile software development or any of that kind of stuff. And we had a bunch of movements in the industry since then, or almost mini-revolutions. Um, things like extreme programming came along, or automated testing, um, agile software development, DevOps, the DevOps movement. Um, and then on the tech side, we had um virtualization, um, the cloud, containers, container orchestrators like Kubernetes, all this technology came along. Um, But I think you could sum all that up as these days things are moving really fast, uh, the way we develop and release software, but also the way in which it's deployed. uh, And you've got things like some people may be doing this, others not, monoliths being broken down into smaller distributed services, even uh, microservices. things like Kubernetes, which bring you great advantages, but that also moves fast. It means that your processes, uh, again, they might um, IP addresses get recycled. So the whole environment is just much more dynamic um, and it's solved a lot of things. It means um, means you can move fast and, and deliver product, um, but it comes with challenges as well. Um, another one I didn't mention is Um, being able to measure everything so there's been this observability revolution where uh, DevOps said you know just record everything every metric every log put it all somewhere it means a lot of data and and you have to find ways to analyze that data Um, and one of the things that's happened is um, people have tried to find ways to do um do things like service discovery, so how do you find your your distributed services if you want to be able to to talk to them, send an HTTP request, to make a database connection? Um, how do you how do you monitor them? How do you have visibility of what's there? Um, and really importantly, security. Um, you know, how do you how do you secure all that network traffic? Because in the past, you used to do it with firewalls, and you used to know the IP address of your machine, for sure, and your IP address was kind of the identity of your application. But that's that's not really the case anymore, The the IP might get recycled to another application. Um, so what started to happen, I think, is that a lot of these, in a way, if you think about them, their networking concerns started getting baked into our software through middleware. You could install the developers, could install uh, monitoring tools, um, you know, how how, what should be the timeout on my HTTP request? Uh, how many times should it retry? Those, those are all things that a software developer has had to think about, um, and it might be different frameworks and different languages. Um, so it's, it's actually a lot of, a lot of effort goes into instrumentation and security and that kind of things. Um, so I think that that's the, the, the problem that service mesh is trying to address. It's trying to take the network concerns. Out of the applications and free up the developers to focus on um, on developing the application that that makes money or delivers functionality for them. Um, so to give you, I guess I should dive into how it works. Um, the idea is that when um, when different applications communicate with each other, a um, service mesh can be transparently added onto the top, which means that. Ideally, you should not have to modify your applications to take advantage of it. Um, And that's achieved by effectively injecting a a small lightweight proxy alongside every instance of your application. So on Kubernetes, your applications, your processes run as containers in pods. Um, And uh, Istio, the, the service, the open source service mesh we're talking about, takes care of injecting a lightweight proxy as something called a sidecar, um, alongside your your process, your main workload process, and then it programs the network for that process, for that pod, um, so that the, the the proxy running in the sidecar handles all the incoming and outgoing traffic um, for that for that application, um, which means that it can start to provide all kinds of useful functionality.
2: So is is that is that what you said, uh, the technical stuff? the sidecar is uh, the lightweight proxy that comes with every in this app. case,
1: yeah, actually, sidecar has kind of become a generic term in uh, in the Kubernetes world. So it's you your um your applications run in something called a pod. It's usually yeah. one process. Um, a sidecar is is another process whose um, whose destiny is is linked to the main application. So it could be anything. In this case, it's a proxy, so we should probably call it the proxy sidecar. Or actually, the particular proxy we use is is a technology called Envoy. But it, it basically means that the proxy starts up with your application, if, and when your application goes away, the proxy shuts down with it. So they they're, they live together. But you but you say you can have more
2: functions for the sidecar. That's uh, and in this in this case, we talk about uh, definitely uh, sidecars, the
0: lightweight proxy. The okay. sidecar yeah. can basically be anything.
1: And I think the important thing here is that the container that runs as a sidecar is this proxy called Envoy, or my American colleagues pronounce it Envoy, more like the French, I guess. And um, it's um, it's a powerful, lightweight C++ proxy uh, and performant, obviously. But the the cool thing about it is that it's it's really extensible um, or programmable. So an API can communicate with this proxy to get it to do stuff for you and, and to configure it dynamically at runtime without requiring restarts. Uh, yeah. So it, it can do things like, and I'll give you an example for each, for security. Um, it can um, ensure that the traffic between two applications is is wrapped in uh, a mutual TLS tunnel. So, um, so the traffic is effectively encrypted, but also authenticated. Um, but the nice thing is that's transparent to your applications. They don't have to know anything about the certificates or the encryption. Um, the proxy handles the traffic locally in the pod, encrypts it with a certificate which is also injected, and then and then sends it to the destination where where um, the TLS tunnel is unwrapped. Um, so it's the proxy is adding security and identity there to your to your communication without the application developers having to do anything. Uh, it can provide service discovery um and because because the proxy is sitting in the request handling path it knows amazingly powerful metrics like how long every um, http request takes so what your latency is how many http requests there are so how much traffic there is um and uh you know what what kind of errors there might be so it can count errors response status it's fully aware of, of several protocols http grpc um and some TCP um, protocols as well. So it can report all those metrics back to um, to various um, metrics and, and monitoring software.
2: So let me let me see if I understand the, the story you just uh, told, uh, James. Uh, so you explained the, the 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 history of where we're coming from and and uh, are in nowadays. So that uh, to summarize it, you say we are now in the the period of the dynamic environments, but that comes with challenges. And those challenges means that uh, more and more of the the stuff is going to move to software developers. But that's not what you really want. And to solve that, you can uh, implement uh, a system like service mesh, so you get that out of the application again. That's what I just learned from your story, right?
1: I think that's it. And I, you know, some software developers, me included, uh, going back a few years, would have said, "I love playing with all those tools and the DevOps stuff and the metrics and the monitoring and and I th- then I realized that I was spending far too much time um, looking for cool middleware to put in my applications to handle network-related concerns or, or monitoring or whatever it is. Um, and I've, that time could have been better spent on, on building um, core functionality in my application, you know, the stuff my manager actually really wanted me to do. Um, yeah, and uh, so I think, yeah, that there's that advantage and that it's like a... Because it's transparent, it it applies it can be used with every application, no matter what the programming language. Um it's just a proxy which sits in the request path. Uh so yeah, it's it's quite powerful. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's uh a, a Java application, a Python application or or um something more exotic. Uh it just it just works.
0: Yeah. And I think important to add here is that you can do uh, uh, an Envoy proxy just by yourself. You can add it to to any application you like. Um, what sets the service mesh apart from just doing plain Envoy proxies is that is the way is actually the centralized part. So there's there's also a control plane to the service mesh, and that's where all the configuration lives. So um, um, all of the applications connected to your service mesh are are represented in the control plane and the control plane is then able to automatically configure uh, all of the proxies to to do whatever they need to do so it provides the proxies with the routes the applications need to know about so we can centrally configure uh, what applications a specific application is is supposed to be talking to and we only feed those routes to to the proxy um, so this is it's all about automating the envoy proxies.
1: That's the center of it. I mean, that's what Istio and Service Mesh really is, is, you know, they're just a bunch of proxies until you add the control plane. And so thanks for pointing that one out, Remco. I I should have got to that. And uh, (laughs) um, I guess the the thing I mentioned, uh, service discovery, that's um, that's a cool thing. So the the control plane, um, for instance, in the case of Kubernetes is kind of sitting on top of Kubernetes. So. Obviously, Kubernetes knows where your pods are deployed. You know what the IP addresses are, uh, uh, what their names
0: are. So, but only for a single cluster.
1: Yes. Yeah. So the the Istio control plane can observe the um, uh, the API servers of multiple Kubernetes clusters and kind of merge all that information together and and turn it into into what the service mesh needs um, for the services to be able to do service discovery. Um, so add interior can plug into other orchestrators orchestrators as well, or even uh, virtual machines and networks, which I think we'll touch on at some point
2: yep yeah so, it's a nice bridge uh, the the single cluster versus multi cluster so uh, <laughs> why did why did we uh, need it in
0: com uh, um yeah, I guess that's one for me um well because we. When we initially went to the to the Google Cloud and we we went with the whole Kubernetes movement in order to provide uh, self-service deployments to to our uh, to our software engineering teams, um, we we had this grand vision of oh Kubernetes is super um, efficient and we can use a single cluster per environment. So we started out with the development environment, the staging environment, production, uh, all of which had a single Kubernetes cluster in it. Um, so Kubernetes scales up to about a thousand nodes, which um, a, a node is a, is a virtual machine or a physical server that runs your, your workloads, and that's actually quite a lot, right? So we shouldn't have any problems there, um, except we made a couple of mistakes, um, um, and one of them was that we, uh, when we made the um, IP subnets for our Kubernetes clusters. Uh, we made them too small. Uh, we kind of gathered that we we, we had a, around 350 to 400 microservices in our data center. So uh, we figured that uh, for a Kubernetes cluster, if you have 1,024 services, that should be plenty, right? Because that's twice as much as we have in our data center. Um, so the first thing that happened was that our, uh, as soon as we launched our, our cloud setup, uh, our developers became super enthusiastic and they started developing all sorts of stuff um i think yeah we have hundreds like close to a thousand i think microservices in our in our google cloud setup at this point so even if we um if this was the the only problem uh, the cluster would have been full by now anyway uh but what we didn't take in in, in regard was that like basically everything you need to expose in a Kubernetes cluster requires a service. So monitoring would have its its separate service. Uh, it's not uncommon for, for a regular service in, in the cluster to have um, actual three service endpoints. So it grew super rapidly. And at some point our cluster was just full and yeah, we we, we needed to, to get out of this. So we could either just delete the cluster, uh, recreate a new one with new larger IP ranges attached uh, but that this stuff was already in production, so that would have yeah. been, meant a major outage. Or you you put a second cluster next to it um, and just go from there, right? Except that the workloads in the in the one cluster cannot talk to the workloads in the other cluster um, without some form of magic. Uh, you can do you can do, you, you, you can do Kubernetes ingresses on top of your cluster, route all traffic traffic through that. Uh, In our case, that would have been suitable for user-to-service traffic, but not for service-to-service traffic. Um, So we needed a way to connect everything together, and that's actually how we came up with Service Mesh. So definitely not from a high perspective, uh, but from a very existential network requirement, basically.
1: But you still called it some form of magic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, yeah, because this this is like uh, one and a half years ago that this issue actually came into play, um, and service meshes weren't um, um, weren't as popular as they are nowadays. Uh, they weren't as far developed as they were nowadays. So it was a bit we were ahead of the curve in 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 this regard, but we kind of had to 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 solve our problem. Yeah, uh, and then all the all the the glorious other features of the service mesh um they were just they were there for the taking so why 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 don't we take them while we're at it that was kind of how this happened
2: one question ramco i hear you say kubernetes ingress what's that and is is that uh, kubernetes kind of doing service mesh or is it something else
0: um no it's it's not the equivalent of a service mesh it's the um but it's a proxy so you can, you can basically tunnel all traffic uh, into your cluster through um, uh, an ingress. Uh, we, we actually use those at bold.com. We use uh, Nginx-powered uh, ingresses. Uh, but those have static configuration. So you bind a host name to an ingress. Basically, yeah, it acts like a web server. Um, and all the requests that end up at, at, at the ingress will be forwarded to uh, the appropriate services within your cluster. So it's a, yeah.
1: load, it's a load balancer, effectively. I, I yes,
0: guess. Yeah. a centralized load balancer.
2: And, and that sounds more like, uh, and you 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 are you call it static, so that is a bit contradictory with the dynamic environment uh, that you want to achieve with.
0: Uh... Well, it, it serves its own purpose, but yeah. um, um, if you want to dynamically allocate a workload, and it doesn't matter, um, it could be on, on cluster A right now, and it could be in cluster B, um, um, for the next week. Um, that means that static configuration doesn't really help, especially when you have a thousand applications, you're gonna do a lot of configuring. Okay. Um, so some way to automate all of that would be would be very useful. And uh, not only within uh, these Kubernetes clusters, obviously, uh, but you can also extend this to the other parts of the infrastructure. James, James, James touched up on this like the, the past 20 years, Uh, bolded coma has been around for the past 20 years and we've been building infrastructure and using infrastructure and much of that infrastructure is is still there so we don't only have an isolated cloud setup we still need to uh, connect to uh, stuff running in other parts of our infrastructure as well
1: And talking about ingress it makes me think you know ingress is really it's like you could call it a proxy or a load balancer it's designed to operate at the edge of the cluster so it's um, traffic coming in from outside of a cluster um you know and the, and then it's being mapped to um to routes or whatever to to make sure it goes to the right destination services on the cluster um but it it's a load balancer and it's worth you know something i didn't touch on is um just like remco said it's a proxy and i said it's a load balancer envoy is also a proxy and a load balancer and i think i think that's one of the the coolest features of Envoy and the Service Mesh that um, surprisingly people, you know, even um, people selling Service Mesh don't talk about that often. Um, because every single Envoy is a is a load balancer and it's deployed in the sidecar, effectively inside your application or right next to it. So it means that every um every application, not just every application, every instance of an application, every pod. Gets its own load balancer, uh, which is aware of all the other load balances, thanks to the control plane uh, programming the proxies, and that makes things super interesting from a, a load balancing perspective. Because I guess yeah. 20 years ago, you know, you just would have had some whatever big uh, hardware load balancers uh, sitting in your data somewhere, data center
0: somewhere, and, uh, and we still do have those. Yeah. and we have. I think we have like five or six ways to load balance applications within our data center and between the data center and the Google Cloud. And that all just made a very complex landscape. So like you really need to know where an application lives in order to know which kind of load balancing and service discovery techniques you can actually use. And and Istio, the the, the service mesh we we use, uh, aims to simplify and unify both addressing of applications. So you have one way to name an application in order to reach it through your entire infrastructure. Uh, and greatly reduce the complexity of load balancing, especially mm-hmm. for software teams um, um, along the way, which is a, which is a big win. Cool. Yeah.
2: Hey, yeah so you uh, described now how um, uh, why we needed this in uh, in Com, uh, uh, mainly because of the uh, the yeah the number of addresses in the in the cluster, and uh, yeah we, we had to do something about it. Uh, and next to that, the the new uh, the the other features that uh, Istio. Is um, yeah, mesh, uh, usually
0: offers. people uh, start doing service mesh because they want the cool developer features that that the service mesh brings, right? Like the the, the added metrics or the uh, uh, the ability to do uh, distributed tracing across service mesh. Uh, yeah, we did we didn't for none of that. We just we just needed the network problem to be solved, uh, to be solved and, yeah. and the rest was basically free. Yeah.
2: So how did how did we team up with botcom um, and Google? Uh, can you explain uh, something about the journey?
0: Uh, yeah so uh, this started uh, one and a half years ago I think it was it's almost two years already um, and service meshes were still a bit new at that phase uh, we kind of knew we had to but yeah uh, because of the hype circle it was a uh, was a bit dangerous to uh, to go with this uh, we've obviously been partnering with with Google uh, a, a lot longer um, I mean yeah we're we're our stuff is GCP, so it makes sense to uh, to partner with Google, right? Um, and yeah, we were quite hesitant on on how we should do service mesh if now was the right time, which service mesh to to actually pick. Um, and Google has more expertise uh, on that field than we do, so it, it made total sense to involve Google. Um, uh, uh, luckily for us, they uh, they were quite eager to do so as well. So uh, yeah, we've we've been having a lot of conversations since then and it actually started with uh, um, like a quite theoretical exercise uh, so just defining why do we need a service mesh what kind of service mesh do we need what options do we have and how will we go about implementing this was this was all very structural.
1: I was very impressed by that i, I because I saw it i came in I, I think i I got involved because when I joined google i I'd actually had a bunch of these problems at my previous uh, employer and I thought, I wonder what cool technology there is inside Google that might address some of these. And I, I stumbled upon Istio Service Mesh in the very early days. Um, yeah, And then, like Remco said, um, a couple of years ago, a request came in um, for somebody to come into and, and talk a bit about Mesh and um, to do a sort of 101 introduction to what is Service Mesh um, to engineers so that's how I got involved, but then I was lucky enough actually to to be involved through the whole adoption right you know right at the beginning when the first meetings were happening and you were evaluating are there alternatives very sensibly what they are um, different work groups for telemetry uh, networking you know that kind of stuff so it was yeah. it was very cautious and, and well planned all the way through and and incremental, which is something we talked a lot about in our talk
3: mm. <clears throat> Okay, cool. And you, you also said uh, about uh, like a comparison. What what made Istio stand out of the the other alternatives, and why did we go for Istio?
0: Um So back in the day, there were actually only two real contenders. Uh, there was Istio, which was which was already the big name in the industry, uh, and then there was Linkerd, um, uh, one of the CNCF initiatives. Um, nowadays, you have a lot more options to to, to, to pick from, but Back then, those were the two. Um, well, what's, James, what's CNCF? The Cloud Native... Compute Foundation. Right, Compute thank you, James. Yeah. It's basically the, the, the governing center. body of, of everything that's, that's in the, the, the Kubernetes universe. Um, so, yeah, we had a very thorough selection process. We made a matrix of all the things that we needed and then all the options that we had, and we, yeah, we just basically... Uh, evaluated everything, um, so I, I can name the top four things that we were looking for. Uh, first was obviously multi-cluster support, uh, because that's what's the problem we were trying to solve. Uh, two, we wanted to do mesh expansion. So as soon as our our clusters were connected, we also wanted to expand the mesh into our data centers to have a unified uh, service mesh encompassing our entire infrastructure. Um, we wanted egress gateways. We we talked about ingress. Um, um, the Uh, The other way around is an egress gateway that basically uh, uh, channels traffic uh, going outside of your infrastructure through uh, a gateway Uh, because we had issues with filtering outbound traffic from our Google Cloud setup. uh, We wanted to audit and uh, specify which connections um, could go to the outside world and which which wouldn't. Um, um, Well, we used um, um, a data center proxy for that um, which works fine but it doesn't have the granularity of control we wanted and an egress gateway definitely would um, and the last thing we were really looking for was a strong community um, if you're an early adopter you don't want to be in this uh, all by yourself right you, you want people helping you out when you, when you have a problem um, and in the end Istio was um, um, the only thing that touched on on all the, te- uh, the checkboxes uh linkerd didn't have multi-cluster support back in the day. It does now. Um, it actually looks pretty good. Um, so yeah, if if you're doing a selection right now, uh, just weigh your your options carefully. Um, it's a, it's a it's a great day to do service mesh right now.
3: But, but then again, is that also a, a risk because some of the uh, let's say suppliers will be there because it's high on the hype cycle and there's a lot of uh, of them who are just not going to survive. And if you pick one of those, yeah, then you're basically sitting with, uh, let's say, over five years unsupported software. Is that a risk?
1: It's a good one for Remco to answer. I reckon. <laughs> or am I just making that one up right now? So I, hope, I hope Google's around in five years. That's. It. I hope they are.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know some of the others that were added in the last two years. I, I can imagine. Yeah, there,
0: there's a yeah. lot of a lot of startups doing doing service mesh uh, um, right now. Um, I don't know. I I don't think I don't think bold.com is in a position to bet on a on a um, on a startup right now. I think we're we're choosing. Um, we're picking these battles carefully uh, mm-hmm. but if you're in a startup yourself and one of the startup service meshes uh, comes at a low price for you and it has the features that you need why not i mean um if, if you can switch to a service mesh you can switch away from it or switch to another one
1: i think it's worth saying you know th- i think you've said or hinted that when bodacom started with service mesh it was I wouldn't want to say immature technology but it you know it was um there were there was lots of learning to be done. There was a learning curve um and and for, for me as well. So the adoption has been a, a valuable experience from both sides and uh I sort of feel lucky that I, I had a you know, I had direct access to the team of Istio engineers working at Google and uh and so they've they've been able to help quite a bit. Um, but also they've learned things um from the adoption. So um that relationship has been has been pretty useful going going both ways and definitely. I think you know, we probably shouldn't go into it now but in the talk we talk about some issues you know what we what bold what what we referred to as a is a rare networking issue that bold.com managed to make less rare <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and and uh, which we were able to work through um, you know so that um, other users of mesh no longer face that issue for instance so it was definitely a uh, um, a full-on implementation in the sense that you were bringing in, I think, 500 different kinds of different applications or different services it, which had been running on those clusters for a long time. Well, in fact, they never stopped running onto those clusters. You, yeah. you introduced the service mesh to your existing clusters, which um, was an extremely good test you know, of a, of a large-scale mesh adoption. Uh, and we learned the journey was really interesting.
0: And obviously, from, from our side, being able to talk to the Istio developers when we, when we had an issue and, and have your problem solved the next week, that was invaluable, right? That, was, um, that really helps um, um, getting confidence in this, in this product because you're, you're adding a new layer to, to your infrastructure and you need to have confidence in operating this in order to do this in large scale.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You you even showed pictures that you work closely together during a conference. Uh, the, the, yeah, together with the engineers on uh, on specific tasks. So uh, yeah, really that nice. was actually
0: the, the issue that James mentioned. We 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 had an issue, and uh, some of some of my team uh, was in KubeCon San Diego, um, and the Istio people were there. So G- James just grabbed everyone. He put them together on a on a table and. Uh, I think they solved like the, they they established what the problem was right there, and the, the fix was there a week later, right? Yeah,
1: I think the uh, the engineers were were quite glad to um to open a terminal and actually do some uh, do some engineering at a at a conference where there was a lot of talking going on. So, but yeah, San Diego was a was a good moment for getting our heads together.
0: Yeah, and it shows the power of those those CubeCon events. They're, they're really yeah. great. Really helps the community as well.
3: And you mentioned, that, yeah, there were a lot of uh, learners along the the journey. What 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 are typically, let's say, two or three learnings that also would benefit other people starting with Istio?
1: I think I th- I think the the incrementality of it. So, you know, when I was talking about Istio, I think you can lump the the functionality or the the benefits that it provides into sort of three main categories. There's the control of traffic, um, the load balancing, or even you know being able to split traffic and say 1% of my traffic should go to the new version uh, uh, of a piece of software, or there's also the telemetry or the observability, and then there's the security. So there's those three things. Um, but before you get any of them, uh, you need to install the mesh. Um, so it's not just about in, installing what Remco was calling the data plane, oh, sorry, the, the control plane. But you've got to get these proxies uh if you're if you're um brownfield to use the term if you have existing applications that you're introducing the mesh to um you need to be careful about um effectively hijacking the traffic with a proxy um because not every application i say is transparent but there are cases where um where you you have to be careful uh, about putting a proxy into the request handling path um and uh you probably don't want to do it with every single one of your 500 applications at the same time uh but there was there was therefore went into how how to get sidecar proxies into these applications namespace by namespace um and uh you know and then to gradually start enabling um mutual tls so um encrypted connections uh um, so the traffic was upgraded to mutual TLS. But mutual TLS, um, and I think not everyone realizes this, it's, it's, it's just like it's TLS effectively. Um, the, the standard for it is, is transport-level security, which is what what you get when your browser talks to a web server, or hopefully that's what you get these days, um, and the server presents its certificate. Um, mutual TLS is, is just a, a smaller extension to TLS that means that both server and client present certificates to each other um, and verify each other's identity. So um
0: so you know who you're talking to.
1: Yeah, you know who you're talking to, which is which is authentication. And I think that's that's a much underappreciated point. You get encryption, but your application gets an identity in the form of its key or certificate. It's you know, it's kind of saying, I am who I say I am, I'm this service. Um which is which is super valuable, but because before you would have had an IP address configured in a load balancer, and nowadays an IP address doesn't mean as much as it used to. Um, it's ephemeral. It's a, it's a network identity, but doesn't doesn't say I don't know that my entitlement service really is my entitlement service. So the the point I'm getting at is, you know. If you enable if you if you enable a service to send a TLS encrypted requests, the destination has to be able to handle them, um, which means it also needs to have been included in the mesh. So it took a bit of planning to make sure that both sides, client and the server, were introduced into the mesh at the same time, and that and then mutual TLS was enabled incrementally. Um, so it was incremental all the way. You have to get your sidecars in before you can do anything really useful with the mesh um and then assuming that you want security which was one of the or the security features um which was one of the features that com wanted you you have to gradually enable mutual tls encryption and authentication between all of your services and then the cool thing is um that once your applications are you know are telling their server their servers i am who i say i am they're authenticated that gives you the power to do authorization so you can say um, I don't know my um my shopping cart service is entitled to talk to my entitlement service, but um some other service that um, an engineer is experimenting with is not allowed to talk to my entitlement service because it contains PII, personal information um, so you, you can get um role based access control or authorization between your between your services at a fine grained level um based on their real identity and not an IP address. And so that's the third. You have to have authentication before you can have authorization. So it was all that incrementality. So my advice would be, you know, if you're doing any kind of significantly large service mesh adoption, is not to try and go for everything from day one. You know, you, uh, you don't might want... Do
0: don't do a yeah. big bang in production.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think the thing that was a bit special about com's adoption was that it was originally to solve this multi-cluster IP exhaustion problem, which meant that it was, um, you know, it's DevOps, but it's a platform team first adoption. It was more or less transparent to the developers, as I understand it. Uh, so service mesh got introduced, and developers were obviously informed and trained.
0: Um, but that, are- that's a second takeaway, right? If you yeah. if you if you were not the one doing everything in this company, uh, like. Bold.com is pretty big, and we have dedicated software development teams that take care of their own applications now. They need to be in the loop about stuff like this. Um, we expect them to um, um, to maintain their applications. but That also means that they have to uh, do a bit of configuration work in order to um, adopt MTLS and, and uh, the role-based um, um, authorization model. So they need to know what they need to do, and they need to be in the loop. Otherwise, you're going to have a very tough adoption.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And no, they might be, I don't know if they are, but they might be really keen to get their hands on, I don't know, there are features like fault injection, you know, where you can um, artificially insert a delay into a request response chain to, to do some testing or traffic splitting, you know, so you, or all kinds of um, useful stuff that a developer might want to configure. But the, the ball.com I think made the sensible choice of get the sidecars in less um, get authorization policy in place and then then they've got a stable base uh on which to um expand and use extra functionality from the mesh going
0: forward um, you know, and i think that the last uh thing that you really need to to mind when you're you're doing this is to separate your control plane from your data plane don't don't mix and match them together Uh, If you have issues in your data plane, you don't want your control plane to go down because, yeah, that affects communication. So by keeping a separate control plane, we we run our our control plane on a dedicated Kubernetes cluster. Uh, So separated from everything else. Uh, That also means that it's easier for you to upgrade those components um, uh, along the way easier uh, or have have an easier backup.
2: And how how do you avoid this control plane being the, the single point of failure?
0: Well, it's, it's Kubernetes, so uh, Kubernetes fault-tolerant. Um, and if you if you deploy um, the uh, control plane components in a high-available manner, so not a single pod, but you have multiple instances of everything, uh, that's fine. And then Google takes care of the, uh, the Kubernetes cluster not going down for us because we, we host this stuff on, on Google Kubernetes Engine, GKE.
1: Okay. yeah and another another important point, and is you know I started hearing when I joined Google i think four years ago now, I started hearing these words data plane and control plane, and i thought what what are these planes that everybody's talking about uh, do I get to go on the private jet or something like that but no it was it was it was terminology I heard inside Google, but um you know that wasn't widespread outside of Google because typically you have things like data planes and control planes in large distributed software architectures so I think the key the key point is the data plane is the proxies. In the case of Istio, this is the stuff that's handling your traffic. You don't want it to fail, but by its nature, it's distributed. The load balancers in every single instance of your application and you run multiple instances, so no single point of failure, which is nice because historically, load balancers could be single points of failure, or you'd have to have a hot standby or something like that, um, but the control plane is the thing that you use to configure your proxies. So if it goes down, um, you can no longer configure your proxies, but luckily the proxies cache their configuration. Yeah, that, that's a good so, thing, right? Yeah. I mean, so even if the uh, control
0: plane goes tougher. down, the, proxies, the yeah. proxies are still running and they will just keep using the configuration that they currently have. So as long as you okay. don't do any change in the infrastructure, you're fine.
1: Yeah. And there are, there are failure <laughs> <for> modes <laughs> that develop over time, you know, because it, it is an ephemeral environment, you know, so it would be a bad idea to restart all your Kubernetes nodes at that moment in time because, uh new new uh, new applications would come up and they wouldn't know how to uh, how to get the proxy configuration but um you, you the the data plane can live without the control plane um fairly well and certainly one would hope long enough to resolve um any any outage of the control plane and we're getting to the point I I don't know if it'll be a thing for Ball.com where google will offer a, a managed control plane so um you know, not only could you run your control plane on a dedicated cluster, but you could have Google run it for you, you know, just like we run um, the GKE um, Kubernetes cluster control plane. Um, so that's that's going to be an option soon as well.
2: Uh, yeah, guys, we, you you have a lot of experience, so you so you're, uh, you're telling a lot about those one and a half years uh, together working on this uh, service mesh implementation at Ball. Com. But yeah, unfortunately, we are already heading towards the end of the this this podcast. Yep. So I'm looking at Peter Paul as well. Uh, if he has burning questions left, or should we go to the final? Yeah, well, let's go to the closing round. Okay. Yeah. So that's his. Yeah. What's your most important takeaway, guys?
0: I, yeah, I think we already kind of discussed those um, uh, just before, uh, just yeah. the incrementality of, of everything.
1: Um, I'd say, yeah, that is the that incrementality and and cautiousness, but also um, that. I've really enjoyed the project and the collaboration um, and the engineering. Um, there've been some challenges, but the, I think the result is, is the, the important takeaway for me. I, you know, I, this mesh is is running in a an existing production environment with um, thousands of hundreds of services. Um, uh, I haven't, as far as I know, uh, it's it's had um, it's been very resilient. Um,
0: yeah, we haven't had kind of, any major outages yet. I, I mean, we're in the middle of the season, uh, <laughs> the season yeah. right now. So, knock, knock. Let, Let's hope it stays that way. But yeah, yeah. We, we took every precaution, and I think that's also one of the takeaways: you can do this in production.
1: And we've built the foundation, so we have encryption authorization, and authorization. All the uh, this this the journey continues, right? So I, I think uh, we talked about this egress gateway expanding. Yeah, we're definitely machines. uh, Yeah, all these cool features um, that are that are still left to explore at Paul.com. So I'm looking forward to to that. Yeah, yeah. So that maybe that's
2: a nice uh, closure, uh, James. Uh, The 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 journey continues. Uh, So um, maybe we should make a note out of it, Peter Paul. That uh, within uh, half a year or so, uh, we uh, we continue this uh, this talk and see what uh, we'll
0: be definitely be further along this journey. We we have some some pretty cool stuff. Uh, lined up for the first half of next year. Uh, that yeah. involves all of this. So
1: I think we could talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So far, it already gave a, a good overview <laughs> yeah. of right,
2: w- what it is, what what uh, what the journey was about, why we did it, etc. To be continued. Thanks for your time and sharing that with us. And really uh, yeah, no insightful. Cool. Yeah.
0: As you know, we're very happy to talk about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's clear. Have a good thanks. one. See you next time. Yeah, it was good to talk to you.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked the episode, check some of the others. Go to Spotify or iTunes, search for TechLab and subscribe. Leave a five star review so others can find the podcast easier and spread the word. We like interactions, so if you have any questions or suggestions, find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or mail techlab at Hope to meet you in our next episode. Have fun!